Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. An historic outbreak of measles in the United States is bringing the debate over childhood immunizations back to the top of the news. On today's show, we talk with health experts about immunizations, vaccine safety, and we hear how one pediatrician counsels his patients. Immunizations, the childhood immunizations that we give, are the most important public health tool and innovation of the 20th century. About 900 cases of the measles have been reported in the United States since the beginning of the year, according to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control. The outbreak is raising questions about why not all children get vaccinated against measles and other preventable diseases. The Arizona Partnership for Immunization was launched by the governor's office in 1992 because of public alarm over a measles outbreak that resulted in deaths of young children. Executive Director Debbie McCune-Davis has been part of that organization since 1996. And we have worked in partnership with our public health departments, our private health providers, our community advocates, and our folks who deal directly with families who have to make the decision to immunize their kids in order to protect the community at large. Did we see the issue then with lack of immunizations that we're seeing now with this current measles outbreak? Because measles had almost been wiped out uh, until recently. Well, the challenges were different then than what we're confronted with today. At that time, the measles vaccine had been available. It had been developed in the 60s and, and began to be widely used as the years went by. And I think the public health entities believed that because the measles vaccine was available, that it would be used. But after the outbreak in, the, in 89 and 90, there was a white paper done and a retrospective look at who had been left vulnerable to the disease. And as it turns out, it was the very youngest children in our population. And then they began to look at medical practice and the procedures that um, pediatricians were using to immunize children. And the rule of thumb at the time was that children would receive their vaccines when they came in for well visits. But not all children came in for well visits. Many kids came to the doctor only when they got sick. So what happened in the early 90s were a couple of things. One was to update the standards of practice to encourage pediatricians and family practitioners to look at a child's immunization status every time they came into the office to make sure they hadn't fallen behind. The other thing that happened was many states, Arizona included, developed an immunization registry where a vaccine that's given to a child goes into a central database that healthcare providers can use so that they can deliver the highest quality care to the child by basically picking up where the last provider left off. The state collects a lot of data, as you were just talking about, regarding immunizations, including from schools about vaccination rates. What's the data show now about vaccination rates, and how has that changed over the last few years or decades? Well, there's, you know, two different processes here. The, the immunization registry I mentioned before really is used almost exclusively by healthcare providers and um, school nurses to make sure that kids are getting what they need. The other data comes from a, what's called an IDR, an immunization data report, that the state health department collects from schools and from child care centers. And over the last five to seven years, I would say, 
uh, there's been concern in the public health community because the immunization levels, as reflected by the records that parents provide to the schools, suggest that fewer kids are getting vaccinated. The measure that's actually used is the use of exemptions for families that choose not to vaccinate against certain diseases. And the data that's available on the Arizona Department of Health Services website shows pockets where, you know, the kindergartens actually have lower than what is needed to protect the kids in those classrooms. Why do you think the public has begun to doubt or distrust vaccines? There's two common themes. One is that vaccines work. And as a result, our young parents are now making decisions about whether or not to vaccinate based on whether or not they've seen the disease. Well, vaccines are very successful, and we don't see the diseases that we had 20 to 25 years ago. And since they're not circulating in the community, families don't feel threatened by it. Reality is that those diseases are still circulating, and they will reappear if we don't keep our our protections up. The second is social media and the internet and the ability of like-minded people to share information. You know, it's well documented that there's an abundance of misinformation and just bad information that circulates on the internet. You were talking about pockets uh, of lower immunizations. We were looking at the state data maps uh, for Southern Arizona and in Pima County, it seems that there were very high immunization rates in areas that are less affluent. And as you got up into some of the more affluent areas, there were lower immunization rates. Why is that? You know, it's an interesting correlation, and it, and it has held consistently. The more affluent the families, the less likely they are to immunize. And the correlation isn't easily explained, except that we know that families that are struggling economically or are economically on the margins can't afford to have their kids excluded from school and have to stay home with them because they risk losing their jobs or losing income. In the more affluent areas, it may be that they these families are not concerned about having their kids excluded from school when there's a disease outbreak because the economic impact on them is less. There are also some who suggest that the um, parents have, have an education about health, but they like to inform themselves, and in doing so, they get led in directions that aren't based on science. We also noticed on the map that the Native American areas, the the reservations, all had very, very high immunization rates with the exception of, of the Hopi. Is that, again, going back to, as you were just saying, some of the socioeconomic, or is there a cultural thing going on there? So what we see in the partnerships that we work with is that Indian Health Service does a remarkable job of reaching the population that they're responsible for, and Native American families do immunize their kids. Uh, as to the distinction with the Hopis, I'm, I'm not certain what the issue is there, but I do know that across the state, Native American children are well immunized. We're talking with Debbie McCune Davis, the executive director of the Arizona Partnership for Immunization. We've seen as this measles outbreak has spread around the country and people are starting to pay attention 
to measles uh, vaccines again. There are a number of legislatures around the country who have added exemptions, uh, allowing parents to not get their kids vaccinated. How are leaders in Arizona handling all of this? Is there a move uh, to allow for more exemptions, or what's leadership doing? We've had bills on both sides of the argument filed. There were bills that would have eliminated or reduced access to immunizations, basically personal belief exemptions, in favor of medically-based exemptions, where you would have to demonstrate a medical cause in order to not have to vaccinate. Those bills were never heard in any of the committees. On the other side of the argument, there are three high-profile legislators who have been working a set of bills that would expand exemptions and would actually increase Arizona's vulnerability to disease. Those bills did get hearings. None of those bills have actually gotten to the point where they will proceed this legislative session, but the groups that encouraged the bills, which I'll describe as anti-vaccine, have made it very clear that they're not going away. They are rallying their troops to, with plans to come back next year. All right. Well, thanks so much for sitting down with us. Thank you. That was Debbie McCune-Davis of the Arizona Partnership for Immunization. Governor Doug Ducey has said he will not sign bills that increase exemptions for vaccines. The measles outbreak has not hit Arizona hard. But earlier this month, the Pima County Health Department announced someone with measles traveled through the Tucson International Airport at the end of April. We asked Deputy Director Paula Mandel where that measles case stands. Actually, there's not much more information that I can share at this time. Um, Our EPI team has been working closely um, with the state in which the individual came from. Um, And sometimes when you're doing an investigation on a communicable disease, family members or the individual who presented with that disease are very forthcoming with information. Other times, they just don't engage with us. And so our information is going through the state and state is speaking to the other state. And so um, the process is being really slow this time. Walk us through, if you will, what happens when a call comes in to the health department that will use this case as an example. Somebody with measles went through Tucson International. What happens next? So our epidemiology team is notified, and they begin taking information. They hopefully have the name of the case. They have contact information, and then they will actually reach out to that individual and say, I've been notified either by your physician or by another state um, that you may have been exposed to a communicable disease, in this instance, measles. And then they begin asking a series of questions, you know, when did you start presenting with symptoms? Um, How long have you had the symptoms? Were you seen by a physician? Where did you travel? Did you use any public transportation? Did you go to any uh, shopping centers? You know, try to figure out and narrow down where they may have been. Once you narrow that down, how do you get the word out? Is it a case of, as happened with this one, you get in touch with the media and help us spread it? 
or are there other ways you get the word out? Because if they were at a shopping mall or an airport or other public transportation, that's a lot of people. It is. So first, if the if it's a small group, so it's an individual who resides within a family, and maybe there were other family members or friends who maybe came into the home, we start with them and say, there is a possibility that you've been exposed to measles. We want you to be aware of that. If you pre- start presenting with symptoms, this is what they may be. Or you need to reach out to your um, primary care provider and let them know that you possibly have been exposed to the disease. If it's, let's say, for the instance, like with the airport that we had recently, again, it's working with the airport and the state and looking at those travel itineraries, people who may have been in that area. Again, we're so grateful when we are able to engage with the media and use your assistance to help us get the message out. Hey, if you traveled on the 29th between this time and this time, we really want to let you know that there's the possibility that you've been exposed. And it's a good idea for you to reach out, you know, to your primary care provider. When it comes to vaccinations, which is what a lot of people are now talking about in light of this latest measles outbreak, the rate in Pima County for measles vaccination, it looks like, runs about 96 percent. Is that good or bad compared to the rest of the state? Actually, Pima County, we're very good. Our immunization rates from all of our vaccines for children are very high. They're at 95 to 97 percent. It depends on which vaccine you're looking at. Just across the board, we are at a rate of about 96 percent. Does the county work to keep that rate up and and? Do you work with partners to keep that rate up? It's a community effort. So yes, the health department is actively involved in providing vaccines for children and adults, but we also rely on our um, community partners. So our pediatricians, our family practice, hoping that they will encourage their patients to receive vaccines when it's time. When we talk about vaccines, as I said, everybody's focusing on measles right now and a lot of little kids uh, getting their vaccines. But there are other things that people get vaccinated for. So how does the county work, for example, with the homeless population to make sure that they're as healthy as they can be? We try to get the information out to the homeless population. And as we have been sharing within the community, we do have a hepatitis A outbreak at the moment. And that is one of the high-risk populations that we are wanting to vaccinate. So working with the media to let them know that there is this outbreak and they are considered a high-risk group. And then working with those community partners, the homeless coalitions, those that engage the homeless individual um, on a daily basis or a weekly basis, again, to let them know that um, we're going to be coming to that facility or we are available at the health department. I know one of the groups you work with a lot is El Rio. Can you talk about your partnership with them? It's a really good partnership. So they have been actually, with their homeless program, been over the last year already vaccinating the homeless for adult immunizations. And so they'd already been vaccinating the homeless population for hepatitis A. So they helped us get ahead of the game. When it comes to measles, it seems so contagious. Is that what makes it so dangerous? Any communicable disease, any vaccine-preventable disease is dangerous. That is why we're so passionate about um, vaccination and being able to prevent the disease. What people don't realize, whether it's measles or hepatitis A or chickenpox, is that you are vaccinated, hopefully the uh, if you are exposed, the symptoms are less. If you're not vaccinated, then you're probably going to experience the symptoms more. And it may not actually be the disease itself, so 
measles that um, causes you issues, but it's the opportunity that your system's already weak, and so it may expose you to other things. Um, what people don't realize is before there was a vaccine for measles, um, it was not uncommon to see three to four million cases of measles a year. With that, that was also almost 50,000 cases uh, that were hospitalized. And unfortunately, there were more than 500 deaths. So vaccine has been, um, has been one of the biggest public health prevention um, champions that we have. All right. Well, thanks for sitting down with us. Sure. That was Pima County Health Department Deputy Director Paula Mandel. You're listening to The Buzz. We're spending this week talking about vaccinations in light of recent outbreaks around the country and here at home. While measles is the focus of attention in the immunization debate, it's far from the only recommended childhood immunization. Dr. Andrew Arthur is Director of Pediatric Medicine at El Rio Community Health Center. He's been a practicing pediatrician there for 26 years. He says there are many things parents can do to keep their kids safe and healthy, including breastfeeding, avoiding cigarette smoke, good nutrition, sleep, hand washing, and immunizations. We have these enormously powerful tools that have been available in some cases for decades, and they've all been validated. They've been tested. Do these tools work? Yes, these vaccinations work from very well to extremely well. And are these vaccines safe? Yes, they are monumentally safer than taking penicillin for a sore throat. Each of the vaccines has its own story. The vaccine against meningitis haemophilus influenza type B is against a disease that I saw myself when I was in medical school and in residency. So after 26 years, I have seen this disease essentially vanish. We've gone from 20,000 cases of invasive disease a year with this germ to less than 200. So people in the community who used to talk about this disease, they don't even know the name of the germ anymore. Now, other diseases are even more rare, like tetanus. We vaccinate against tetanus starting at two months of age. And in 26 years, I've never seen a case of tetanus. But I've heard about people who've gotten tetanus, been admitted to the intensive care unit, and been deathly ill for a year or more. How often in your practice do you have parents come to you with, with newborns and toddlers and ask questions? Should we really be doing these vaccines? I've heard, I've read that they're unsafe, or is this just something you don't hear? It's something I hear more now in the past three to five years. So I do get a number of questions about vaccines. I have very few patients who refuse all vaccines. Uh, one of the vaccines that is more likely to be refused is the influenza vaccine. Now we can go to the influenza story. And that's a disease that two winters ago, not this past winter, but the previous winter, there were about 80,000 people who died from influenza in the United States during the season, and about 180 of them were children. Almost all of the children who died were children who weren't protected by the vaccine. Influenza is the number one cause of vaccine-preventable death in the United States. The vaccine's effectiveness varies year by year. 
Um, in general, it's much more effective in children than in, in adults, and so we're more often seeing effectiveness ranges in the 60 to 70 percent. Uh, but still, I have parents ask, well, can't you just give one vaccine and, and give another in, in 10 years like you do with tetanus? And I say, I would love to do that. We're trying to get that vaccine. That doesn't exist now. Well, can't you get a vaccine that has 95% protection like the measles vaccine? I would love to have that. This is the best we have now, right? But the vaccine, remember, is not the only way to protect against Influenza, it's taking small babies and not having them exposed to large crowds, particularly during the influenza season. It's a good night's sleep, it's regular exercise, it's good nutrition, it's create that strong, healthy body, it's hand washing to reduce exposure to germs. And then well, what else can we do? We can give this vaccine, which helps provide an extra layer of protection. And well, it's who's at highest risk, the elderly and the very young, who can't get the flu shot, the kids under six months of age, and the kids uh, whose immune systems, even if you gave it, it wouldn't respond. So as a social contract, if all of us or the vast majority of us get our influenza vaccines, we will be helping protect the most vulnerable in our society. When it comes to vaccines and parents deciding to not vaccinate, there are a whole host of reasons that they can do that. But there are also medical reasons that you as a doctor can sign off and say, this child should not be vaccinated. And I know that's a very small number. What are some of the medical reasons that a child or an adult cannot be vaccinated? That is correct. There are a few, very, very few children who have uh, particular illnesses or allergies that cannot receive a vaccine. So if a child is allergic to, meaning they are at risk of anaphylactic shock, life-threatening allergic reaction after receiving a vaccine, they should never receive that vaccine again. In 26 years, I have never seen someone in that situation. More commonly, there will be people who are very, or who are very sick, who you don't want to ask their immune system to do work at the same time um, that their body is fighting off an illness, or there is someone whose immune system is compromised. So you have someone who is under care for, under therapy for cancer, leukemia, and their immune system is not ready to respond to a live virus vaccine. We're talking with Dr. Andrew Arthur. He's the medical director of pediatrics at El Rio. When a parent comes to you and says, not for medical reasons, but I don't want my child vaccinated, what's your course of action? Do, do you counsel them otherwise, or do you just say, okay, that's your wish, and, and move on? So that's a situation I am in occasionally. Um, it's becoming more common I ask the parent about their concerns, and then I talk about what our common goal is. I say that parents love their children, and they're trying to do the best. They are struggling to do the best they can to protect their children. And so from the point of view of the parent, they've received information or they have a worry that some of the vaccines or a vaccine component might hurt their child and that that risk is greater than the risk of not being vaccinated. And so 
I acknowledge that we have a common goal. My goal is to love my patients and show them the best possible care and to give them the best possible scientific information. I, I tell them that I, I, I'm obligated to, I have to, to fulfill my professional ethics, tell them about the benefits and risks of the vaccines. And we'll often talk in specific terms. So the risk of a life-threatening reaction to a course of penicillin for strep throat. You can get heart disease from strep throat, rheumatic fever, and die from that. Uh, and you can be very, very sick. So we give penicillin if you're not penicillin allergic. And the risk of a life-threatening reaction is about 1 in 75,000. The risk of a life-threatening allergic or other idiosyncratic reaction to a vaccine is in the range of one in a million to one in four million. It's so rare that it's hard to quantify how small that risk is. When you have these discussions with parents who are nervous about getting vaccines, how successful are you in convincing them that that's what they need to do? So I would say that there are a very few patients who come with these discussions to begin with. Of the ones who come, if they are offended by me giving information, they generally leave and don't come back to see me. But I have a number of patients who initially started with refusing all vaccines, and then after together we've weathered a few storms, right? a case of pneumonia, trip to the emergency room for diarrhea, uh, ear infection, evaluation for language delay. And we've built that sense of trust and therapeutic alliance, have allowed some of the vaccines to be given. Immunizations, the childhood immunizations that we give, are the most important public health tool and innovation of the 20th century. That was Dr. Andrew Arthur, Director of Pediatric Medicine at El Rio Community Health Center. El Rio offers walk-in vaccine service for low or no cost to the community. We turn now to a personal story. Tucson resident Leslie Meyer lost her son to meningitis when he was 17. She shared her story with our producer, Ariana Brocious. I taught first grade in kindergarten in Sunnyside District for over 40 years. And I'm currently president of the National Meningitis Association. I got involved with the National Meningitis Association after I lost my son, Chris, to bacterial meningitis when he was 17. And I didn't know anything about meningitis at that time. I actually didn't even realize how important vaccines were. But he had scored the winning goal for his high school, Sabino, to become the Arizona State Champions of um, soccer in 2005. And then we were all on top of the world. And two weeks later, he came back from um, snowboarding in Durango over rodeo vacation, and he had a headache. And so um, that night, he was going to a soccer practice, and he said, you know, Mom, my head feels kind of weird. But I, I still can go practice because it was with the U of A club coach, and he wanted to play soccer. He had been accepted to the U of A. He went to practice, and the coach sent him home. And that night when he came home, he ended up taking a bath because he couldn't get warm. He um, had a headache, and I knew he had a high fever, and I thought it was the flu. 
So I asked if he wanted to go to urgent care. He said no. He just really wanted to sleep. And I just, it was flu season, and I thought that um, he probably did have the flu. So I sent him to bed with an extra blanket and some Tylenol. He got up a few times during the night and um, vomited and took another bath. And in the morning, I went to work. I knew his dad was going to be home, so his dad said he got up and had water. He didn't want to eat, but did agree to go to the doctor. And so as they prepared to go to the doctor, his dad went to check on him and found him laying on his bed and asked him why he wasn't ready. And Chris said, well, Dad, I can't feel my feet. And those were his last words. And he was rushed to uh, St. Joseph's Hospital. He was unconscious. But the paramedic had demanded a spinal tap, which we're very fortunate happened, because two hours later, the spinal tap results showed that he had meningococcal meningitis. And um, in less than 30 minutes from that time, we he was um, unconscious. They were trying to resuscitate him, and we had to actually let him go. So there is a vaccine. There there was at the time um, that could have prevented this. That was just not. It had just come out. It wasn't widely in use. Yes. When Chris died, he died March second, two thousand five, and a vaccine had just been approved for adolescents, but it was not available at doctors. Actually, when Chris went to the doctor in November, he asked if he should have any shots because he hated shots. And his doctor said, no, but when you start college, you'll need one. And I know now that was the meningitis vaccine. There was a vaccine for meningitis recommended for college kids living in dorms. Adolescents, young adults, college students are more at risk because of their not getting enough sleep. They're not necessarily eating as well as they should they're sharing their around people from lots of places. And, and those are the, the things that put kids at risk for meningitis. So you said that there is now a requirement in Arizona that students get this vaccine. Can you talk a bit more about that? When Chris died, I wanted to prevent other families from suffering the loss that we had experienced. As a parent who's very involved with her kids' health, I took them to the doctors. I, you know, I really felt like I was on top of my kids' health, but I didn't know that there was a vaccine like meningitis that could kill so quickly. So I got an appointment with Will Humble, who was the deputy health director of the state at that time, and I my mission was that I would see if he would make meningitis vaccine uh, mandatory. Uh, Will said yes, that he thought that was an important thing. Arizona was currently rewriting their vaccination rules And so what ended up happening was Arizona became the first state to mandate the meningococcal vaccine for 11- and 12-year-olds. And um, we were hopeful that the vaccine would offer protection for 10 years. But unfortunately, the protection starts waning after five. So we're really hopeful that we will be getting more kids vaccinated with the second dose, which is necessary five years later, hopefully at age 16, because... um, Chris was 17 when he died, and that would protect kids through their most vulnerable years. That was Leslie Meyer of Tucson, and that's The Buzz for this week. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Ariana Brocious produced and edited the show, 
Jim Blackwood is our production engineer. Andrea Kelly is the news director. Our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.